Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. When will Canadians see a vaccine rollout? What can we expect? We'll talk about that. Over the last few weeks, we've seen several freedom rally protests that neglect COVID-19 safety protocols. Organizers in southwestern Ontario have had enough, and they have laid charges against them. And a city councillor says he's received requests from restaurants across Hamilton asking if they could be shut down. That's different. We'll talk about that, too. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to start off today with uh, vaccines. Uh, that's been a major topic, of course, for the last two weeks uh, right around the world, not just here in the uh, Ontario area. And that's, of course, because of the announcement from Pfizer, Moderna, and others uh, about the possibility of vaccines. And uh, we were reassured uh, by the Prime Minister that they've ordered millions, if not billions, of these things. There's going to be enough for everybody. And that was, okay, we felt pretty good about that. Uh, yesterday came the revelation that, uh, well, Maybe not as fast as everybody else. And we're starting to hear stories now that uh, some jurisdictions, including uh, the United States and the U.K. and others, uh, may actually begin inoculations as early as next month. Uh, we aren't going to be able to do that because we don't have the production facilities. Well, there was a lot of excuses and a lot of reasons given for this. Joining us to give us an update on this is uh, David Aiken. David, of course, is the uh, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Uh, David, thanks for joining us on a very busy day. Uh, try, try to explain to us exactly what went on in the Commons yesterday and, and the explanation from the Prime Minister. Sure. Well, here's what we know. We are going to get three million, uh, sorry, six million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Those are the two that likely, well, Pfizer for sure, looks like it's on track to get approvals in both Canada and the United States in mid-December. But as you mentioned, you know, once it gets approved in December, in the middle of December in the United States, uh, they will probably start a vaccination program, say, third or fourth week. We're online. Federal officials are now saying that Canada will get its doses of the Pfizer-Moderna vaccine in the first quarter. That's as, as firm as everybody in the Canadian government can be. First quarter of the year. They're hoping it's January, but maybe it's the first week in February. Again, first quarter. Now, I mentioned six million doses. It's a two-dose vaccine, so that means three million Canadians should go through their two-dose regimen through that first quarter. So by April 1st, three million Canadians. The focus, all the recommendations from the health experts is um, do healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers, and people over 70. Not necessarily in that order, but we know we're only going to be able to do three million people We've got four and a half million Canadians who are over 70. We're not going to get all of those. So choices will have to be made. It's going to be up to the provincial governments to decide who gets, who's going to be first in line. Um, they have recommendations from the feds, but up to the provinces. On the manufacturing issue, bit of a red hair, and opposition politicians are taking task. But Pfizer started building their vaccine facility that makes this thing in 2018. These are two new kinds of vaccines, high-tech mm-hmm. vaccines. They're called mRNA types. And even if Canada had decided in March and had the foresight to say, oh, yes, mRNA is where it's going to be at, we wouldn't have been able to build something in time. It would have been, in fact, the Bill Gates Foundation did make that bet on mRNA and started building some new plants back in the spring, and they are a long way from getting their plant uh, up and running. So, the, the, again, biotech executives, experts say the Fed's approach, just buy a place in line. It's not the front of the line, but it's not the back of the line. It's like second, third, or fourth in line. And that's why we're looking at first quarter. I wanted, I'm glad you clarified this thing, because obviously it's the opposition's job to make political hay out of whatever they can. Uh, and, and the reason why we don't have production facilities, I mean, you know, it's a, a pox on both their houses, because uh, both the Liberal and Conservative pa- governments of the past uh, let this, this industry just kind of fade away from Canada, didn't they? Uh, pretty much. I mean, that's, and that is something, God help us, if we have a COVID-22, we are going to have to address this. 
Uh, and that, I think, is some good discussion to have sort of for the next round. But for this one, buying it from existing manufacturers is where it's going to be at. David, look for your updates on this on uh, Global National, as always. Thanks so much for taking some time okay. with us today. Cheers. Take care. David Aiken, of course, uh, Chief Political Correspondent, uh, trying to make some uh, uh, sense out of what's going on here. And, and and his point's well taken. You know, it's it's incumbent upon us to separate the politics from the realities here. Uh, you, you know, if you were to listen to some of the opposition party members yesterday, you'd think that, you know, we we're never going to get this stuff, and it's not going to happen. It is, as David just clearly pointed out to us. So how is this going to roll out, and should we really be concerned about the way things are happening uh, with the rollout of the vaccine? I want to bring up Professor Allison Thompson in from a university city of toronto uh to uh, give us some clarity on this uh, allison great to have you back on the program uh your uh, your read on what's happened over the last week or so with the development of these vaccines and and uh, seemingly the fast tracking by uh, health canada and other agencies right now are you are you comfortable with the timeline i think that it's a it's a reasonable timeline you know we're never going to have the the kind of robust data on on these vaccines that we would normally have under sort of a non-emergency setting. So, you know, I think Health Canada's vetting process for these vaccines is reasonable and, um, you know, multiple jurisdictions around the world will also be looking at these things. And so I think we need to be looking at um, sharing these data across jurisdictions globally so that we can know when there are adverse events that are possible and, uh efficacy issues that we need to be keeping an eye on so hopefully we'll see that start starting to to be talked about and and have that data shared across the world that's that's one thing that i guess a lot of people have, have mentioned and, and maybe you could expand on that if you would uh you know we we don't have data from any one of these people right now uh from pfizer or from moderna about what they're doing uh we just know that they say it's, it's a very efficient you know the tests anyway have shown that it's very efficient uh but yeah, I know people like yourself, experts in this field, would like to see some some data, some some facts and figures to back this up. But we, I guess we're still in somewhat of an experimental stage. Even the people that are going to get inoculated in December or January, uh, we're going to be watching them to see how this responds and how effective it's going to be, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, I, under ideal circumstances, we would be doing that always with all vaccines. Uh, we would have some sort of surveillance system that has the capacity to look across the country and find these more rare um, adverse events that can happen following immunization. But Canada doesn't have that right now. We really need to be talking about stepping up our game. We have an obligation to to monitor for those kinds of, of safety and effectiveness issues, and we just don't have the capacity right now. Let me ask you about the capacity issue. As I say, I, I, I want to try to keep the pol- politics and the and the, the reality of the medicine uh, separate on this. Uh, are you concerned about the fact that we don't have the production facilities that some other company or some other countries might have? I, I think that you know that's an, an easy thing to pick on the government about, but globally, the capacity to manufacture vaccines is is not good, and you know this is a global issue. This isn't about Canada, um, and you know, I think we really want to get away from this idea that every country needs to have their own manufacturing capacity because that's really going back to this nationalizing vaccine supply issue, which is really uh, not in the best interest of global health. And it's not in our own best interest to leave other countries hanging. Um, it would be much better to have a global 
strategy for manufacturing vaccines because we know that these diseases travel and, uh, you know, as people move around the globe. So we need to be thinking much more broadly beyond our own borders about how to distribute vaccines to keep everybody safe. And, and and therein lies the problem. And, and, you know, when we talk about the fact that we used to have uh, that kind of manufacturing capability in Canada some years ago, uh, it wasn't for pandemic vaccines. I know we, we did an awful lot with insulin and research, and, and that seems to be our niche. I guess you kind of have to pick a specialty, don't you? That, uh, and, and we seem to be doing worldwide work in, in things like vaccine, uh, you know, epidemiology and, you know, people like Mark Lowe and so many other people that have done some great work worldwide. Uh but you know, who, I guess the reality here is nobody saw this coming, did they? Well, I think we've known for a long time that a pandemic is possible. We've had a couple more recently that we've had a heads up about. But I think people have have had um, not a lot of motivation to look into this issue. Um, certainly, we've known that this, this is a problem in the countries where emerging pathogens come from are often reluctant to even share virus samples because they know they're not going to get access to a vaccine uh, until much further down the, the line. So I think that that in order to address these kinds of issues, we need to put put this um, into context. And, and, you know, just because Canada doesn't have a manufacturing capability for uh, a new vaccine, um, you know, just if we could magically create a facility where we could manufacture these vaccines, that's not necessarily going to keep us safe because we have a lot of people coming into the country and going out of the country and then coming back from areas where people aren't vaccinated for for infectious diseases. So this needs to be a global strategy for keeping everybody safe. Do we have the capacity to to enact something like that to everybody get around the table, uh, it, you know, and just say, okay, let's let's attack this as as a a global entity as opposed to one offs? So and I, I don't get the sense that that's that's happening. But I mean, you know, like I say, you know, if I'm going to be vaccinated, and I hope I am sooner than later, uh, I don't care if it comes from Germany, the UK, or, or wherever it comes from, as long as it's effective. Exactly, and I think I think the, there are um, attempts to to globalize. The, the distribution of this vac- of these vaccines. We've got COVAX, which is uh, a sort of consortium of countries and NGOs working together to make sure that the global distribution of these vaccines will be fair and equitable. Um, and countries are contributing, you know, to their research um, so that there are 100 plus vaccines under development in that that consortium right now. And it's much better to have Canada contribute to that effort because we're hedging our bets. It's much better to have um, that investment in all those different vaccines just because we don't know which ones are going to going to work out, you know. So um, that that kind of a consortium would be great to have longer term. And I'm hoping that, you know, after all of this is over, we have uh, the motivation to create some kind of global distribution and manufacturing capacity for vaccines that's not reliant just on NGOs the way it is right now. And, and that's so important uh, because and what I'm thinking about here is obviously I think that our initial reaction is going to be, yeah, I want to make sure I get mine from our families and everything else so that we're all going to be safe. But we have to think globally, don't we? And we have to think about even third world countries that may be way down in the pecking order when it comes to distribution here uh, because all it takes is somebody who's infected to get off a plane in Toronto someplace, and as it did with SARS, and, uh, and we're in, in trouble. And, and you just don't know when that's going to happen. 
Exactly. And, you know, the fact that Canada is not first in line for that these vaccines, that's appropriate. We should be near the back of the line. Canada is a high-income country, and vaccines are just part of a broader strategy to deal with COVID. There are countries where lockdowns kill people because they can't get food and water. You know, like that, that's an issue here to some extent, but in, in countries where there just isn't any kind of infrastructure to support people who are quarantined or isolated, vaccines are a much more important part of the strategy. And so, you know, COVAX is looking at, you know, who ought to get vaccines first, who needs them most, you know, for, for reducing mortality globally, it wouldn't be high-income countries. Well, there's another element to this, too, and I think we have to be practical about this, Allison, is uh, we need to look inward here. I mean, you know, we're talking about you know, frontline workers, and that's understandable, and people, I think David Aiken mentioned that uh, the conversation with the premiers and the prime minister was people over 70 uh, might be in that second group. Uh, but we've got people that, that, you know, would not actually even get in line here. I mean, we see some of the statistics here that, that indicate that, uh, that the virus is having a, a, a terrible impact on indigenous communities. Uh, there are other areas of the country, too, that, uh, that are going to need some help, and we're going to have to really re- organize to, to make sure that everybody's going to be included in this. Yeah, exactly. So we need, to, we need a strategy. You know, part of it will be based on who the vaccine is most effective for, but part of it is about you know, who needs be first in line. Uh, is the strategy going to be to reduce the mortality rate? Then we would be giving it to people over 70 first. Um, you know, we won't have enough doses initially, but, you know, that would make the most sense. Healthcare workers um, normally are at the top of the list, but if they have enough personal protective equipment um, at the time that vaccines are rolled out, maybe it doesn't make as much sense to prioritize them. Um, you know, that's an empirical question um, about whether or not they are being impacted or not but there's also an ethical reason to give it to them because they are providing an uh, incredibly important service to keep society functioning too so um there are lots of questions about you know who needs to be first and then we need to also think about how will people receive that information about whether they're being prioritized or not do they really want to be first in line do we want to inoculate people with a new vaccine who are also incredibly vulnerable so these are really difficult questions to answer David Aiken mentioned that uh, the numbers the federal government was talking about was uh, the initial, I guess, shipment uh, to Canada is going to be 6 million doses. Uh, and since it's a two-dose vaccine, that really means 3 million people are going to be uh, uh, immediately in, in line for these sorts of things. How soon can we expect it that that everybody will be included? I mean, we're talking uh, you know, probably January, maybe February before it gets here. Uh, the rest of us that aren't at the front of the line and are going to be anxious to do this, do we anticipate still what we were told a few months ago, that it's probably still going to be late spring, early summer before this is going to be generally available? It's really hard to know because we don't really know yet whether, um, you know, which vaccines will go to which people. So, so we need more data. We need to know, you know, if, if Pfizer's vaccine is not that effective for people over 70, will we still prioritize them? These are these are partly scientific questions. They're also ethical questions. And, and the timelines are really tricky because we just don't have that information yet. Um, and we don't really know, um, you know, if there are going to be more hiccups in, in manufacturing and supply chain issues related to immunization um, that have, you know, the things like cold chain storage, um, we are told we have enough syringes and things like that, but you never know. There are lots of places along that line um, of getting the vaccine from 
from the manufacturer into people's arms that that could break down. So it's, it is a little bit tricky to know. We we do know we will get them eventually. It may be better to just think that way and, and not put a specific date on it. And the other element too is we don't know who's going to come online in the uh, in the interim period either. Do we between now and and say you know February or March? I mean we're hearing stories now that Johnson and Johnson down in the states is very close to 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 you know getting ready to ask for approval on this too. So there could be more players and and more vaccine available too. That's right, exactly. So we we really don't have all the answers yet that we need to be able to figure this out. So I think we do have to trust that you know we will have a vaccine uh, eventually, but we just don't know exactly when. Allison, always great to get your expertise on this and to, and to you know kind of sift through the rhetoric and let us know exactly where we stand. Thank you so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Great to talk to you too, Bill. Take care. Professor Allison Thompson, of course, uh, from the Dallas School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring you an update on uh, something that uh, we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Of course, Ontario has seen several so-called freedom protests uh, that uh, really are there to debunk the COVID-19 safety protocol. They're anti-maskers is, is what it comes down to. And uh, there were three of them uh, in southwestern Ontario over the last little while, one in Aylmer, of course, one in St. Thomas, and, and one by London, uh, by the City Hall. Uh, no, actually, it was in Victoria Park, as I recall. It was just a little while ago. It was a snowy day. And, and uh, police were there at all three signs. And now we're understanding that the police have now laid charges against some of the people that are organizing this. To give us an update on this, uh, please welcome back to the program, Sawyer Bogdan, reporter with Global News 980 in London. Uh, sorry, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, I guess we sort of expected this, as you you mentioned to us you were at the uh, the Elmer uh, protest and uh, there was a police presence at all three of these wasn't there yeah I think before each of the rallies police made it clear that they would be there to collect evidence and they would be laying charges if they felt people were in breach of the rules and that's what we're finally seeing now they've um, hit the point where they're able to start charging charging people so you talk to us about what you saw at the time, the rallies. Uh, would you classify them as peaceful? Were they rowdy? Uh, were, were police that were on scene, did, did, did they have to actually enact things like crowd control or anything, or were they just observing? Um, I mean, crowd control is definitely a factor, especially when you're talking about Elmer, when there's like 2,000 people marching through a very small community. Um, so they definitely tried to um, control the route, um, make sure nothing was happening. There weren't too many, it wasn't, there weren't too many like rowdy people. I wouldn't say there were too many fights that broke out. There might have been, I know there were definitely some arguments between people in the communities not wanting the people who were protesting to be there. And they def- there was definitely some heated exchanges that I saw and witnessed. Um, but for the most part, I think it was just like containing the sheer number of people and also making sure that they they didn't end up doing anything. But also there's that fear that you don't know what they're going to do if a bunch mm-hmm. of people not wearing masks are going to start marching into um, shops or demanding different things. Like it's, I think it's, police were mostly there to observe, collect the information they needed to then be able to start um, laying charges. 
Yeah, and that was the concern. I mean, you know, we talked to some of the folks in Aylmer before that, as we did with St. Thomas. When you remember the conversation we had about that, and uh, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and others were very concerned about this. And s- some shop owners actually were just going to close up shop for the day, uh, but others worried about you know if the, the, if the protest was going to go by there, just you know, was there going to be any damage? And it doesn't seem as if there was anything of that ilk. In other words, I, I'm wondering about what sort of charges are going to be laid now. Is it the, the very fact that they did this? I, I, I suppose is, is in fact, you know, it, it, that's against the law based on the COVID-19 laws that have been passed in the province, right? Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not seeing charges really for property damage or you know assault. What we're seeing is breaking the rules, and um, it's the organizers of these events that are facing charges, and it's for holding large gatherings. When we're talking about 200 to 2,000 people, depending on if we're talking about London, St. Thomas, or Elmer, like that's still far and above the what's allowed right now to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, so that's really the starting to hold the people who held these events accountable because they didn't hide the fact that they were doing it. They you know, publicly put their names out there on social media and police um, tried to have those conversations beforehand saying, don't do this. And if you do this, you know, there will be consequences. And that's what we're seeing now. So did you get any idea as to why the police didn't lay charges right then and there? Or why they waited? I think that's hard. It, I guess it's hard to say. That would really be up to police as to why they didn't do it immediately. I think when you're talking about um, behind all of these rallies, what's being said is they're like, we're fighting for our freedom. We have a right to voice our opinions. We have a right to gather in Canada. And they're really trying to throw the Canadian Constitution in people's faces to justify their large gatherings. I So I can understand from police's side where they're like, we don't want to be hasty. You know, we didn't start arresting people at Black Lives Matter. We didn't start arresting people at other events. So I think police were like, we'd rather take, a, we don't want to escalate the situation, especially when you're talking about groups of 2,000 or 200 people who are all, you know, they all have very strong opinions on this matter. So I think it would take probably a larger police presence if they wanted to start arresting people but i think more than that they just wanted to say if we're going to charge you you know we're going to make sure there's a lot of evidence behind that and we're not gonna i think they're they probably did want to take some delicate um take it delicately because you know we are talking about people's rights to assemble versus like public health risks yeah well that's the essence of the debate isn't it uh, you know their the right to assemble and the right to protest uh which i understand is totally enshrined but you know we're talking about a public health matter when you know it's the people that are looking after public health are saying no you can't do that as long as this virus is around but anyway uh that's that's for them to debate and it's it's something that's been brought up time and time again uh and your point's well taken i guess if they started to do something on site uh the chances of some repercussions probably increase significantly in other words people might get upset about that uh even people that are, may would maybe not going to get arrested would still react to this too uh, better to wait until a week or so and that everybody's cool off a little bit and, and just uh, go and lay the charges individually it seems to make a lot more sense uh, and it's still happening i mean you know we're talking about the three that uh, that you've been covering of course uh, in london st thomas and in Aylmer. Uh, Randy Hillier, the MPP, of course, uh, has been charged with doing one just yesterday. So uh, obviously the authorities are being diligent about this, aren't they? Yeah, I think they're really like they want to take it seriously. They don't want people just saying like, I can do whatever. I don't have to wear a mask and I can do whatever they want. Please, I think want people to know there's accountability to it. But I think they also want to take this as, as delicately as possible because this is a this is a time. Um, this is like an unprecedented time that I think we're in right now. The other element to this too is is uh, the the individuals involved. Uh, 
the information that we got when we talked to some of the folks in Aylmer and St. Thomas and, uh, and even, of course, the, the more recent one in London, was that uh, they saw a lot of the same faces at all three uh, protests. Uh, did, does that indicate that this is a, a group that's going around? Is it, is it just one a group of two or three people that are doing this organizing? I mean, I, I guess they'd like us to believe that it's people within the community, and I'm sure there were some people from London and some from St. Thomas and Aylmer, uh, but there were a lot of outsiders there from what I'm told. Yeah, um, I think uh, Elmer, for example, I think is the the biggest one we saw because it was 2000, and there were definitely majority of the people there were not from Elmer. Um, there, it wasn't organized by the Line Canada, but that is the group that we're seeing really promote these events on their website, and they're encouraging their members to come out to all of these events. And you even saw it at the um, restaurant owner, I think in, it was it Etobicoke or Hamilton, like I saw the Line Canada flags and all of those photos mm-hmm. as well. So it is a group of people that are traveling to all of these events. It's not like individual pockets in these communities. There are definitely probably some individuals in each community that are opposed to mask wearing and opposed to the restrictions. But it is, in general, if you look at it, you'll start to recognize, you'll see similar faces. It's a sort of um, same group of people um, trying to make it seem like there's more Canadians who are opposed to the restrictions than there actually are. When I think in reality, if you go into most communities, the majority of those people in those communities are going to be like, we just want to stay safe. We want to keep people safe. We want to be able to support businesses and we want to get through this. And the only way I think the majority of people, they know the only way we're going to get through this is by wearing masks and maintaining physical distancing. And there's definitely repeat offenders when you look at the people who are charged it doesn't it appears that there was different organizers of each of the events that um, are being charged so it's not the same one person for each of the three events but it's definitely mm-hmm. the same characters especially in our area that you're seeing pop up at all of these events um speaking about sharing their opinions loudly Sorry, was any concern? Were you surprised that the, the, the London event didn't draw a larger crowd? I mean, it's a much bigger community, obviously, than Aylmer and St. Thomas. I, I know the weather didn't really agree with them, but, but you know, it was, it was kind of a windy, stormy, snowy day that day. But uh, the anticipation that I had heard is that it was going to be much larger at Victoria Park. Uh, and I know, you know, even part of the crowd that they did announce, uh, some of those people were, were not there to protest. They were there to look at the protesters and maybe to engage them if they wanted to. But it was, uh, it was not as big as a lot of people thought it might be. I'm going to be honest, um, I wasn't expecting a large turnout for London. Um, If you look at the group's Facebook page beforehand, there was only 25 people who I think RSVP'd that they were going to be there. Um, I think police estimated there were around 200 people total, which, like you said, is also probably factoring in people who were this this there to observe or even hold their own, like, anti-demonstration to what was happening. Um, I think in general, like, when we're talking, it's, it's starting to get colder outside. You know, the day the mm-hmm. Elmer event happened, it was a very warm, beautiful, sunny day. And I think it's kind of interesting that you start to see even the events in St. Thomas, there was a lot less people and there were less people in London. I think you're starting to see that, like, people's, uh, convic- people's like, beliefs, you know, it takes a bit of a turn when you're starting to throw in snow or rain. Then they're a little less likely to start wanting to voice their opinions about mask wearing then which I think is just sort of an interesting point. And I think as the weather starts to turn even more, we'll start to see less of them out there um, protesting just because the nature of we're in Canada. Um, But I think also the community of London as a whole has done really well handling the pandemic. 
Um, I think the majority of people here have been really diligent about mask wearing. We want to support local businesses, and we're doing what we can to do that. And we're doing the, you know, the requirements needed as to how many people can be in stores and, and mask wearing to really keep our community running. And I think there's been a, a sense throughout the pandemic, although we're starting to see an increase in numbers um, as well, and it's not the best. I, I think in general, the people in London have been taking it fairly seriously. So I'm not surprised that given the weather and also um, I just given the general opinion of this um, of this in London, that there weren't that many people here. Exactly. Uh, Greg, reporting on this. Sorry. Thank you so much for taking some time for us today to give it the update. I uh, really appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Take care. Sorry, Bogdan, uh, reporter, of course, with 980 CFPL, uh, who covered the uh, the protests, the anti-mask protests. Uh, I just got an email from somebody saying, when are they going to be in court? Uh, I, I don't have the date, but uh, COVID's impacting that, too. Most of the people that have been charged in other rallies uh, around the province, the court dates are sometime in the spring. It's, it's going to be a while, so uh, not going to happen anytime soon, I wouldn't think. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Something else about small business. It was interesting that the city council meeting earlier this week here in Hamilton, uh, the downtown councilor, Jason Farr for Ward 2, says he's received what he calls an eye popper of a request from restaurants across Hamilton asking if there's any way that they could be shut down. Now, this is really bizarre because you've got other restaurateurs that are saying, don't do this, it's going to force us out of business altogether. Uh, you got the guy in Etobicoke, of course, that's now been arrested uh, for refusing to comply with the shutdown order in that particular area. And uh, now Councillor Farr is saying that, no, it's, he, he's talked to people in the business uh, that say, just shut us down for a period of time to try to get this virus under control. It's amazing, really. Marvin Ryder joins us to talk about this business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Marvin, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Bill. I got to tell you, I was a little surprised by this, but sure. uh, but last night I was doing a segment on our sister station, AM640 in Toronto, uh, with Alex Pearson, and uh, we were talking about this very issue, and she said they're, they're hearing the same thing, that there are restaurateurs there that are saying, look, shut us down. Not, not forever, but she said maybe a two-week shutdown. We know it's going to happen. We can plan for it. We can tell people you'll be back to work in two weeks, something to get this virus under control. Uh, but it's, it's rather interesting coming from those people who have suffered so much because of uh, the lockdowns that occurred in the springtime. Yes, well, you know, you and I have talked before about something we call the law of unintended consequences. Yeah. You do something over here because you think it's good, and then you don't realize it has negative consequences somewhere else. So let me give you two examples of a restaurant. Uh, maybe there's a restaurant in a, in a nice little boutique area. It's not a very big restaurant. Maybe it's got seating for 35 or 40 people, a rather intimate thing. And today in Hamilton, since we're under the red zone restrictions, that restaurant can be open, but can only have 10 people in it. So, okay, you cut back a couple of staff people, you don't have as many specials on the menu, and you make sure all the guests are socially distanced, but you can function not too badly that way. Now, let's imagine that you're a giant restaurant. Uh, I'm just going to call it ABC. I don't want to be seen as promoting something, but ABC could seat 300 people, 400 people, perhaps over a couple of floors, and under the red zone rules, same thing applies. They can only have 10 people in the restaurant. Well, if you're, if you're scaled to be able to serve 300, 400 people, 10 people, it, it's really quite dysfunctional. And, uh, and then you say, well, okay, but, but look, you know, you're open. At least you can do something. Honestly, for them, if they were shut down, then they would have access to some of this uh, federal government money that supports businesses, whether it's the commercial rent assistance. But if you're not 
closed, if you're not forced to be closed, you don't get access to that funding. So in their standpoint, they would be better off to be shut down completely than operating at such a tiny part of the capacity. And, and just to give you another variation on that, uh, when we were back in sort of the yellow slash orange zone, uh, if I was a business and I had five or six rooms in my establishment, I had a limit as to how many people I could have in each room. But under the red zone restrictions, the room idea goes out the door completely. It's 10 total, take it or leave it. And that's where the problem starts to come. So I'm not surprised that if Jason Farr is getting these comments, he's probably getting them from the largest of the businesses who say, we can't really function if we can hold 100 or 200 or 300 people. I bet some of the smaller businesses are saying, hold on, we need every dollar we can get. It's the problem with a one-size-fits-all policy. Well, and let's talk about that, because that's the other element to the discussion. Uh, can you actually institute a policy like this? So, you know, when you say restaurants, uh, that's it's, it's it's such an all-encompassing word, as you say. It can be a little place in the corner in a neighborhood. It can be a, a mammoth places. In, on and on it goes. Can you actually form a policy that's going to be fair to both? Well, I, let me just say, on a provincial level, I think that gets really, really hard because of all of these variations, permutations, combinations, so on and so forth as we go. What I think I would like to see, and maybe again I'm dreaming in Technicolor, and especially if we're doing this on the fly, would be for the province to have guidelines uh, given to the local health authorities and then give the local health authorities a chance to adjust this given the unique circumstances. So they can go in, they could check out a restaurant. If a restaurant says, well, look, I think we can, we can abide by this if we put 10 people over here, but maybe 10 people over here and 10 people over here, and the, the public health people look at that and say, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense to me. That, yeah, why don't we let you? We'll authorize you to do that here on the local level. But if we have everything come out of Toronto, you do get this one-size-fits-all. And I, I think what we have to do, unless, unless the Premier, and for that matter even the Prime Minister, wants to head towards another absolute lockdown situation, uh, otherwise I think if we can empower those local health authorities to make those decisions as they go, that would be wonderful. And I get the impression from the way they're acting, certainly the Prime Minister, but I think each and every one of the Premiers, uh, nobody wants to go back to that total lockdown. I, I, I think it just caused too much grief, and they seem to be doing everything they can to to avoid that. But uh, when you do things in half measures like they seem to be doing right now, is it really that effective? Right, and so again, uh, you know, you, you also get these funny things. We talked about the word restaurant. So uh, a, a place that is open right now, Fortino's, it's a grocery store, uh, it's an essential service. But if you visit a Fortino's, it has a food operation in the front of the store where they actually yeah. prepare food. You can have lunch there. So are they a restaurant or are they a grocery store? Can it open? Now, I'm, I'm going to answer my own question. In an abundance of caution, Fortino has shut down that part of the operation. But you can see, again, this confusion I'm a store, but I've also got some restaurant services. Maybe I do some catering. Just what am I? And we encourage that in the name of entrepreneurship. We want people to explore all of these variations and permutations. But when you come to set rules, it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all. So I, I realize it would mean a lot more work for Elizabeth Richardson, and I, I, I've known Elizabeth Richardson for nearly 20 years, and she does a wonderful job in public health in Hamilton. But it would be nice maybe, maybe if we could crack open the doors and, and allow a little variation approved at the local health authority level under guidelines established from Toronto. That might, that might uh, help us more.
Yeah, we've talked to Dr. Richardson and, and of course, Dr. Chris Mackey in London, Middlesex, who used to work right. in Hamilton. I'm sure you know him, Dr. Mackey, as well. Uh, and and I, I think they would appreciate that kind of latitude. It's it's awfully hard, you know, when you don't make the policies, but you have to enforce the policies. And, okay. you know, we've talked to a number of people at the city about that. I guess that's really what bylaw officers are all about, too. Uh, because, let's face it, you're the person that, that cites somebody or you're the person that says you can't do this, and they're going to yell at you. And you, you feel like saying, go talk to the premier. I didn't make up the rule and and i think even the people that are enforcing it probably understand that yeah this is not really fair but it's, it's the rule and we can't do much about it at this stage that flexibility might ease a lot of the tension i would think and bill i think uh the other thing that gets happening is the, these public health officials get confronted by some wonderful innovation at a local level so here i am i'm an entrepreneur i'm trying to run my business and i get this brainstorm here's a way that i can meet the spirit of everything they want and yet still allow me to function on some level so i do some innovation there there's a uh, a place in hamilton here um that is a karaoke bar but what they did is they basically constructed if you will imagine this kind of a shower facility where people do karaoke and they put clear <laughs> plexiglass uh, or uh, not plexiglass clear plastic screens around them so you sort of enter the shower area you do your karaoke but because of the plastic whatever happens is all contained into that area and then they took other precautions with microphones well when public health checked it out they said yeah that actually meets all the needs that we're going to allow you to operate even though a lot of other karaoke places were shut down and that's the kind of spirit of entrepreneurship we want to see people saying i get what you want me to do i'm not complaining about what you want me to do but i think i have found a solution that allows me to both do what you want me to do and yet function as a business Again, to go back, though, I'm not sure if this can save even the largest businesses. If I could seat 400 people in my restaurant and maybe with some innovation I can find a way to have 40 or 50 people in there, I'm not sure that helps them. So then to have public health say, you know, you're right. For you, I am going to issue a, a shutdown order because there really isn't any way you can function in any economic way, and then that will get you access to that help. That would be the other side of this allowing them to shut some people who, who really would be better for them to be shut than to trying to struggle along at 5% of capacity. Well, and it's an idea of, of, I think, having a little empathy for what's going on here. And I'm not suggesting the Premier doesn't. Uh, I'm just saying that, you know, you can't sit at, at your office in Queen's Park and make a rule that you think is going to be fair to everybody right across the province. I, I get the sense, Marvin, in the discussions we've had, really, I guess, since March, uh, when this really started to get serious with the shutdown then, uh, 99% of the people that operate these businesses want to be compliant. I mean, there's always, you know, one or two, like the guy in Etobicoke, the one to thumb their nose at, at the government and, you know, bring in the anti-maskers and everything. That's fine. You deal with them as you would but everyone else is just saying look just give us a chance here you know a little bit of breathing room and, and we'll do what we can here for you yeah and and again i don't want to make it sound like economy trumps uh, a health but we're now into this period at the end of november and then the next two or three weeks of of december which is a busy season for a lot of people it's busy for retailers they, they sell sometimes half of their uh, sales during these, this period. Uh, restaurants also see an uptick because we all get so busy with our Christmas preparations. We don't have time to cook at home, so I'll, I'll go to a restaurant or I'll pick up food and bring it home. It's a busy season for a lot of people, 
and and they would like to see if they could salvage this in some way. They again, as you say, they understand they have to constrain their operations. They understand there's a pandemic. They understand there's health concerns. But on the other hand, the health of their business is also in trouble, and they really need to see if they can find some way to find that middle ground. And I, I love innovation. I love it when I see. Uh, business people, but other people in the community try to innovate and say, here, I, I think I can live with this, but here's something that allows me to also function with my business. And um, I think you're going to see more calls for this as we go by. I know the Canadian Federation of Independent Business has already started an online petition asking provinces to change some of their rules and regulations. There's uh, other calls. We're going to have Christia Freeland next week. She's going to deliver a, an economic update from the federal government. But I, I know the other parties are going to be demanding that she make some changes to allow uh, businesses to survive in some way. And that's, that's our challenge. Until we can get this herd immunity, get COVID, had wrestled to the ground, how do we balance commerce, the lifeblood for many, many, many people, and at the same time health? And those are the challenges. Well, and the other side of this coin is I know everybody's always going to look at Australia and New Zealand who have already gone through their winter, and both of them have not just flattened the curve. Of course, they've decimated the curve. Uh, but they had total shutdowns. Uh, and, and, you know, to their credit, yes, it worked. They, they got the virus very much under control. But there's a lot of businesses that have never reopened the doors as a result of this. And, and you know, that's going to take some time, a lot more time to recover. I, I, I don't know if we're ready for that kind of bitter medicine here. Right. If I take it even a step farther, Bill, um, and I realize everyone is highly suspect of the data that comes out of China. But when China locked down a city, not only did they tell everybody to stay inside, but they went up and down streets with mobile trucks spraying disinfectants all over the place forget about environmental rules and regulations. They said this, fighting the disease, trumps even that, and we're going to spray the streets. I, I don't say that we need to do that, but in some places that wrestled it to the ground, they took extraordinary measures. What we're trying to do is find that balancing point, allowing a certain amount of personal liberty, allowing people to live their lives 80% of the way they did before, 85, 90% of the way they did before, and yet at the same time. And so you're, you're trading back and forth trying to find that sweet spot. And inevitably, whatever sweet spot you pick works for some people, doesn't work for others. And I think this is why, to go back to the start of your story, this is why uh, Councillor Farr had, had these requests. It turns out that what's good for some businesses is just deadly for others. I'm glad you reminded me of that. But I read some of the accounts of what happened in uh, in Australia, uh, and they did actually do that. They had roadblocks set up. You were not allowed out of your neighborhood in some cities, uh, unless you had an extremely good reason for it. Otherwise, you were told to go home. You couldn't even walk your dog. I mean, I, there was one story. It was uh, I think in Melbourne where somebody actually got a ticket for walking their dog in their neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, they just said, "We said stay in your home. Now get back in your home." I, 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 that's not going to fly here. Well, no, and the, the people who are, of course, anti-maskers uh, uh, or, or opposed to some of this, that would just give more fuel to that fire. Um, I, I, I think, again, it's, it's this balancing point. We understand your personal liberties, but we also understand there's a need to be collective here, the need for everybody to take precautions. And, and to, not that I think people need reminding, but we see every day the death toll, and, and especially among some of our older citizens, to die of COVID is to die a very difficult death. You're gasping for air. Your breathing is constrained. You're on a ventilator. That's the consequence if we don't take actions. If we just say, well, let everybody fight for themselves, 
That's what we're going to see, and we don't want that. So I, I think correctly, our leadership, political, whether it's at municipal, provincial, or federal levels, are trying to find a balancing point. Um, and, and we'll just, again, we'll have to watch to see what happens uh, in, in the new year. I think another rate we're going to have is the, is, is the, device, is the sending out of these vaccines. Um, I should go first. No, you should go first. Well, no, they've got to go first. I think there will be some more craziness in the months ahead, too, Bill. Absolutely. Well, we saw that yesterday, and as I say, it's very difficult to, sell, uh, to se- separate the politics from the, uh, the the reality here, too. Uh, always great to get your perspective, Marvin. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Glad to be with you, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.